Welcome to episode 92 of the Daz and Daz NBA podcast, and we come to you uh, towards the end of the first round of the playoffs, but an elongated first round of the playoffs after uh, we we paused in the middle of game five for a lot of these series, Daz. Uh, now, what happened over there in, in the US? We're going to touch on that uh, at the outset of this. I mean, this was... This is, I guess, a bit close to home to you, Daz, because you grew up in Wisconsin. I mean, how far away from where you grew up is uh, is the place where all, all this occurred in the US? Well, I grew up closer to Madison, um, so about 100 miles, Daz. It's not exactly in my back back garden, but um, like Kenosha, I spent my most of my before I came to Australia, living between what we call the I-94 corridor, which connects Chicago to Minneapolis. And so Kenosha is right halfway in between Milwaukee and Chicago. So quite a you know, kind of an urban area on Lake Michigan. And so a uh, you know, very popular, um, well-traveled part of the state. So, um, so yeah, so it was a, um, an area I know well. But I think that was, I mean, obviously that's uh, a bit circumstantial, right? Is the, the broader message as it relates to the NBA is it, I think this was, this was um, and probably well documented by, by the time we're recording this, but uh, I think the combination of things of, right, obviously, you know, Brianna Taylor, George Floyd, and now, um, oh God, Jacob. Oh, it's Jacob terrible. Blake. <laughs> Thank you, here's Jacob Blake. Yeah, thanks. You're here in Kenosha. Um, and obviously what the NBA's grappled with, part of what they grappled with in the restart was being lost in, in this social uh, context and being removed from their communities. And to have this happen whilst in the bubble is devastating for these players on many levels. Uh, um, uh, it hit really close to home, obviously, with Milwaukee, with... Um, you know, Sterling Brown having had his run-in with police. Uh, Kyle Corver penning that that article. I'm not sure if you've ever read it on the, in the Players' Tribune about his you know awakening and awareness and education as an NBA player, and what it means to grow up with white privilege. So he's a very, I guess I don't know, let's say a, a strong voice in in NBA circles and obviously in the in the Bucks locker room and. He had all that stuff up, right? George Hill, also a pretty thoughtful guy. Add that stuff up with just the, now the 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 re, just the rinse and repeat and the mental toll of living in the bubble whilst trying to you know try to win an NBA title and defied by a bunch of mongrels uh, and and morons online because he's in in his own way suffering from his own mental health challenges. So the mental toll plus the stuff and. Um, and of course, as we well know now, as the game, as all the guys came to the locker room, guys being the Bucks, it was an organic, very organic situation that unfolded in real time. And and as we all know well now, it led to that sort of conclusion. So it was probably an emotional day. You know, makes you quite, it makes you reflective. As um, it made me probably, uh, in a way, miss home, miss home, miss home quite a lot. I'm quite homesick that day when I found out the news. But and at the same time, probably ever more grateful to to live and raise a child in here in Australia, Daz. So a whole range of things that went on that day that sort of hit home. And um, I guess I was just pleased to see again the LeBron's prima donnaness aside for a moment. Um, you know that the, obviously NBA 
Players Association and the NBA Board of Governors each went to their respective corners on the following day and some time to breathe and time to reflect and time to think and time to put some real plans in place and <clears throat> obviously have agreed to play and strapped them up here um, yesterday and today. So uh, I, I, where to from here is, you know, you, you pray and hope and hold your breath. There's not another, you know, incident like this. Um, logic dictates is as the insanity of that country um, rolls closer to an election, it would not be surprising if this sort of thing happened again, and we may very well be confronted from an NBA perspective with this discussion yet again, terrifyingly. So I still think that I think there was a period there where we felt that the NBA season was a little bit on knife's edge, where it felt like it was this real palpable chance if if the majority of players in the certainly the the full ones box we support you, and if LeBron was ready to step down and say f this. You know, we can't even get justice for Breonna Taylor when this stuff goes and happens. He goes, maybe we all need to be going home and rallying our resources towards social justice. If they had gotten momentum and consensus around around doing that, I one wonders if how real that could have been. Mm. You can the NBA to agree to tear up the CBA and, and and stop the season, but I think calmer heads prevailed. The complexity of this stuff, Daz, all wrapped together, is and I'll bring it. I'll let you grab this back for me here, Daz. But I'm. I don't think this is the end of it. I think there's a lot more uncertainty and, and uh, anxiety we probably all have to feel here and deep empathy for these players, but also the, you know, the efficacy of this season and just complete and always kind of checking in on what the heck does this actually mean for, for potentially the next NBA season, which is even as we sit here today, has got a whole other raft of complexities that we haven't even figured mm. out yet. So, well, I think there's a lot um, of stuff up in the yeah, air. I mean, the, I think LeBron touched on it the, the psychological toll that the being in the bubble is taking. And he said, Not a day goes by where he doesn't want to just at some point in the day say, I'm over this, I'm, I'm leaving. And then something like this happens. And I think. Yeah, LeBron sort of it seemed to be a bit frustrated by the fact that the Bucks sort of did it on a yeah it was a bit organic the oh, way the Bucks see, did gonna, it. I'm going to jump in here, right? I I hear LeBron, I hear that, and it's absolutely valid. But my problem with LeBron is as he has been stead, he has been the metronome of we want to play, we want to be here, we want to play, we want to win. This is our platform, this is our chance. The best thing we can do is is perform and try to stage. And he and Chris Paul and countless others have been steadfast and using their post-game press conferences to, you know, two minutes, three minutes, five minutes, ten minutes at the time, ask another question, pose a challenge, you know, appeal for, appeal for it. And then for him to suddenly, right, because he wasn't involved in the inner circle, it just felt a bit about LeBron, Daz. It did. Yeah, I agree. Like, yeah, I, th- yeah, I like, think to be fair, yeah, I think if LeBron... Go, oh, I don't think about going by. Well, he, hasn't, he didn't say that once until the Bucks raised the issue. So I go... That's where, again, put a little bit of fair criticism with you, right? Um, I think I tweeted something effective. Well, come on. Son Whiteside and Evan Fournier don't have Barack Obama on speed dial the way <laughs> LeBron does. So he can feel a little bit aggrieved by it. But for him to show that lack of respect for the organicness um, of what was going on in the Bucks locker room, I thought was a, just a complete insult and a bit selfish. But back to your broader point. Well, I think, too, to I, I just, to just quickly, I think right. if LeBron had his had his time again, I think he'd, he'd deal with things a little bit differently uh, than, than the way he probably did react uh, in the moment uh, of all that happening. And I think, but I think that you've got to, I guess, one of the things I'd be interested in knowing from the players is, do they have a plan 
What are they going to do? Because it's one thing to say, well, this is what we're going to do going forward and this is how we're going to use our platform to get out our message. And we saw some powerful things today from Jamal Murray and Donovan Mitchell on, on that front. But what are they going to do when this happens again? And I, and I hate to say it that way, Daz, because it just it, it feels inevitable this is going to happen again because this has been going on and on and on now for a number of years in the United States. What do you, I mean, do you get any sense that there's a plan there to say within the playing group and within the NBA as a whole is this is how we are going to react if we get a week down the track and there's another Jacob Blake or there's another Fernando Castile or there's another uh, Brown or Taylor or whoever it might be, you know, another Michael Brown. I mean, there's so many, Eric Garner, I mean, I can list them on and on and on does. If there's another one of these sort of incidents happens, what's going to what's going to occur then? So many conflicting thoughts about this, Daz. One of them is fair point, right? That okay, um, if you're going to try and take a, a social justice lens to this and say, you know, hey Milwaukee Bucks, hey NBA players, if you want to affect real change, you need to have a really clear end game and and you need to have some probably some clear action plans in place to do that. However, these this isn't. These aren't politicians. These aren't Harvard and Yale grads. These aren't people who've grown up doing community development. These are young men, NBA players, professional athletes who, oh, by the way, have to earn a living, have their own families, are living in a bubble and try to, right? These are some of the most competitive people in the country, if not on the earth, right? These pro athletes are trying to win an NBA title. So I go, it's really, I think, really, really, really harsh to, and unfairly critical of the players for quote not having a plan here, Des, right? So I go, I, I hear you, but I think the, we're we're asking way too much of these players. Like, why is it? This is, I think, the whole thing, the broader conversation. This is is spurring is why is all the pressure on the players? Where are the billionaires in this, right? Yes, it's one thing that the owners have put up somewhere between two and three hundred million, right, for for various things. But I go, that's just money. I don't mean to be dismissive that being just money, but where is the political pressure? Where is, you know, the, the owners and the Steve Ballmers and the Mark Cubans and the West, you know, the West Edens and, and, and Lazarus and on and on and on and the, the billionaire club putting pressure on on state governors, on, on legislatures. Where's that coming from? Why isn't the burden on the billionaires, not the individual men? And in many cases, let's be honest, very, very young men who, who aren't schooled, right, in the ways of, of social reform. And so I go, that's why I hope this is the in the unfair burden that the players carry, Daz, I, I think is really where I will sit with LeBron and every player in that regard is that it's way too big of a burden for them to carry and where are the billionaires and helping them carry it? Well, I think, and that was Obama's message from what I've read to LeBron and the other players that he spoke to, you need to try and affect change through the owners. And unfortunately, the way America's set up, the, the wealth and power <laughs> is concentrated in a very small percentage yeah. of people that you're able to affect change through that. I think... Where I worry about it for the players' point of view is they've kind of set up a rod for their own back in a sense that when this happens again, everyone's going to stop. Everyone's going to look to the NBA and go, now what's the response? And there's going to they're going to expect to see another response, whether it's another we're going to stop work or whether it's another, you know, whether they do take the step next time and go, all right, well, this is done. Andre Goodall is going to march us down to wherever that happens next yeah. and we're going to be in the streets. 
um, you know, maybe that's where it happens next. You know, and, and I really fear for where this is is going to end up uh, in America, and and how, and I guess from that point of view, how hands on and how involved are some of these NBA players going to get once you sort of take a step into that political arena, even if you're not politicians you sort of create an expectation that, that that's you're going to be there for the fight the whole way. Um, and it's it's not going to be an easy fight, I don't think, over there. No, I think these are all fair questions. And, and to get back to the kind of where we, you know, where, where we should be talking about as, as it relates to the, to the NBA is, is that is the, just the, the pressure on the players. I think it's, a, it just feels like it's an unfair burden to put on them and if we talk about this this is all going through their heads right the other big thing that i kept hearing about this last week was um uh i think gulliver and uh, michael pina talked about this really presciently was the um almost like survivor guilt that these guys feel as mm. right it's like this could be me you know tabo theft tabo theft oh geez too late cephalosha cephalosha <laughs> Cephalosha, geez, I just a, a tongue full of Play-Doh here. <laughs> Cephalosha, right, had his, you know, um, his leggers arm busted by a cop, and Sterling Brown, and so this is this is hit home with these guys, and more broadly, this could be their neighbors, their sons, their daughters, right? So this this deeply, deeply affects, you know, them and their communities where they both live now and grew up from, and their probably close friends and relatives in many of these parts of the country suffering the most directly and this survivor guilt that these guys carry around like they got fucking lucky you'll hear him say i got lucky that i'm six foot five and can play basketball and earn a very good life like this right and so this duty they have and the guilt they have for you know both escaping you know the the a lot of the situations that they're you know that the, the the normal black person would face but also being you know what it could just as well happen to me you know, or my child or my uncle or my brother. And so that, that burden I think is getting extreme on the players. And I don't have all the answers. I don't have any answers, but I hope that the owners are uh, in active, active dialogue with each other and working through their uh, circles of influence. I'd like to see more support of the likes of, um, of Kareem, of Bill Russell, these are old lads of George Gervin, of, you know, perhaps some of the elder statesmen, you know, of from the sporting community at large. If the NBA is going to be is going to be like this center point, this this fulcrum, this platform for social dialogue and justice, I'd like to see these current players getting, you know, just getting more support and more help and someone to be a bit of a lightning rod, someone to be, you know, carrying the voice on behalf of them. Right. Whether it's Michelle Roberts and former players or something, Daz. That's what I'm starting to feel. Well, I think the yeah. bubble exacerbates that as well because yeah. it's not like you can bring Kareem into the arena and he's going to address the crowd before the game or something like that or sit on the 2-2 broadcast and, and and have an interview that way. Um, so I think I think the bubble is an extra layer on top of this Um you know that, that makes it even more complicated than what it normally would yeah. be, and I think I, I think the point is, I guess the way that the NBA players can affect change is through speaking out, through using their platform, I guess, to educate people. And if you want to read about what 
you know, if you want to learn from our Australian perspective what it's like to be a black man in America or a little taste of it, just read Sterling Brown's uh, piece in the in the Players' Tribune, yeah. as if you haven't already, because that'll give you I some have. insight into what into the different ways that black people are treated by police in America um, compared to white people. And so they can continue to educate, continue to sort of uh, tell those stories. I mean, because George Floyd was only like one degree separation from NBA players. I mean, he was a good friend of Stephen Jackson, as Stephen Jackson said himself, yeah. you know, if, if his life goes differently, he's George Floyd and maybe George Floyd is the guy playing basketball. Like, who knows? what, what yep. can happen. And that's where the, the survivor guilt that you touched on comes into it. And, and I think the other point is, yeah, the, they do know people in, of influence and they do know people with power. And one of the things that LeBron's doing outside of also talking to the owners is their voting initiative, which is trying to get people out to vote in the November elections. And just because voter suppression's a real thing, real problem in America as well. So there's a lot of things that they're, being across in addition to trying to to win basketball games so and and being in the bubble and everything else that's going on with that so um you know you, you've got to tip your hat does i think to the way these players are handling themselves it's um, a remark it is remarkable yeah i think any criticism is a bit unfair at well because given what they're having to deal with now look i'll kind of go and maybe you can segue from here as i go on the positive side we're almost down to the final eight deaths, right? So there's more and more players able to go home, right, and be part of it. Um, but at the same time, the burden and pressure on this final eight is intensifying and increasing. And it just so happens, right? It's LeBron, it's Kawhi, it's it's Giannis, it's, you know, these these guys. It's still well, Chris Paul for now, you know, um, you know, still there living in the bubble. So um, it's going to be interesting to see what, ha- what happens if, Oh, interesting is not even the right word. Is if something happens again, Daz, I, I will. Um, I guess we just hold our breath and pray that it doesn't. Well, happen. I hope. What does, I hope to see rem- is if something happens again, they've got a very clear idea. This is gonna. This is going to be a response, and, and it's going to be a quick response. It's going to be a clear response. Now, maybe that's asking too much of them, but that's what I would have hoped came out of. Uh, the talks that they've had, and in in addition to the talks they've had with the owners, because I think the owners, to your point, need to be a little bit more vocal themselves. I mean, I've heard, as usual, you hear a little bit from Mark Cuban, who's never one to sit on the sidelines, but I think there's a lot of other owners who, who probably need to get, come forward. Um, anyway, and, and Jordan's been involved a little bit as well, but Jordan's always been a little bit reticent. Um, to step his foot into these these areas, yeah. um, he has been more, yeah. I think, recently. But um, you know, potentially, there's more that even he can do, and others can do, as well to take some of the burden off the players. Um, but you know, it's difficult because people that now are going to look to LeBron and they're going to look to the the Chris Pauls um, of the NBA, and and they're going to say, well, what's what's their response? Um, so you know we, we'll, we'll yeah. see we'll see where it plays out from there. I mean I'm certainly not critical at all, but I, I just have a f- more questions I think after what happened as to where where do they go from here? And I guess it's something that we're going to see. And, and in some ways it's going to be they'll find their own way, um, you know, of contributing and of making a difference. Like we see Donovan Mitchell uh, had uh, he's donated forty five thousand dollars, which added us have matched towards Jacob Blake's. 
children's uh, education and uh, George Floyd was on Jamal Murray's shoes today and, and he's been very vocal um, in, in, in speaking out about George Floyd and also raising money for George Floyd's family as well. Uh, but look, there's... Let's let's put that to one side at the moment, and we'll, we'll sort of see. You know, look, fingers crossed, we don't continue to talk about this sort of stuff. But it's, it feels a bit inevitable the way the political situation is in America. Um, let's focus on the basketball, though. We, what we're going to do is we'll go through the the first round series that have been uh, decided. It was unfortunate that majority of these series sort of petered out a little bit they look some of them looked interesting early and then petered out pretty quickly uh but there's two really well one particularly i think is one of the most entertaining first round series i've seen in many years between utah and uh and denver and also okc and houston have their game six tomorrow but let's quickly look at the east uh firstly with your bucks um milwaukee lost lost game one Twitter, Bucks Twitter went into meltdown as they usually do, does, <laughs> and then very quickly uh, they they steadied and and took care of business. But I must admit, I mean, I watched game one was really the only only meaningful bit of basketball I watched in that series. I watched a little bit of some pieces uh, in games sort of two, three, four, or five. But game one, just zero intensity from Milwaukee. They just sort of slept walked through or that was it was a bit of a hangover I think from the the playing games um and I think once they sort of looked at each other after that game they said well we better you know we better take this at least to some some degree of seriousness about this first round and once they came out and put the clamps down on Orlando in game two it was it was all over did you sort of see it the same way yeah yeah it was it was clearly that look, this is the talent gap is, is so large and, you know, the Bucks won the four games by 15, 14, 15 and 14 with Giannis barely playing, you know, 28 minutes a night. And he was on the court. They were a plus 37 net rating with him on the floor. So it was the, the series wasn't as nearly as close as even a four one would suggest. And well, I'd say they're the only they're the only true gentleman in the, in the Eastern conference because there was no other gentleman in the first round, only Milwaukee, that had the gentleman sweep. Well, the Lakers also did, didn't they, right? So Portland Portland also stole game one, you know, and the Twitter melted down the other way, saying, you know, Dame Lillard is the best player in the NBA. And then Luka was the best player in the NBA. And then Donovan Mitchell was the best player in the NBA. And now Jamal Murray is the best player in the NBA, Daz. So... The good news for the Bucks is the spotlight's off because Giannis is like the eighth best player in the NBA right now, <laughs> according to um, NBA Twitter, because the overreaction short short attention span theater is like it's like nothing I've ever seen. It is unbelievable. I have, of course, I think that's a symptom of of COVID and just about every NBA fan of. Well, let of, me ask you a question without notice. In a bubble somewhere, is Giannis is Giannis slightly less less effective in the bubble? Because shooting is now that that there is, I think shooting is that little bit more important in the bubble because of these guys and what we're seeing from Murray and Mitchell, which again we'll probably get to in a bit more detail later. Like they're both shooting above fifty percent from three. You're not going to see that as in normal arenas in a normal first round of playoffs. I don't think. Is it fair to say Giannis is just a, maybe even if it's two or three percent, he's not quite as effective in the bubble as he is in a, in a packed arena? 
Oh, look, I, I don't think it's not. I think it's, I mean, he averaged 30, 32, 16 and six in 30 minutes, Daz. You know, it's like, it's like he's as effective as he has ever been. Right. And, and I don't, I don't even think he's, if you'd see these games, he's going at about 70% to be honest. He's not at all. He's not close to being at full effort. You know, again, 31 minutes, Daz. You know, wait till he plays. 40. Well, I guess so maybe it's they, not. The broader question is just quickly, maybe it's not his effectiveness. Yeah. Maybe other players who would normally be in his realm are pushing up into that realm because of the could because of that that shooting aspect of the of the bubble. Um, when you shoot 53 pointers a game and the average three-point shot was, what, 36% or something, and it's something like closer to 40 in, in the bubble, mm. right? Your range of outcomes is greater. That's a simple it's simple mathematics, and that happened, right, with the... Um, we all know the freakish double outliers that happened where the Bucks defense played perfectly, stopping the best um, Toronto three-point shooters from shooting, and their worst ones are the, um, of Kyle Lowry and the unknown player at that point, Fred Van Vliet, you know, went crazy. So their, their defense worked exactly how it was meant to work. It's just that the range of outcomes now, are there simply more players who can are more likely to shoot outlier shooting performances in small sample sizes? Yeah, I think that's very, very clear in Denver and Denver and Utah's exhibit one and in exhibit one A, where the teams are shooting almost fifty percent for the series combined. It's it mm. is it's literally insane. Maybe not fifty, but it's it's way up. It's way into the forties for, for the for the whole series. It's something we've never seen before. And again, it goes back to our very first pod about the regular season bubble or whatever you call that the the seeding games when Corver was the first one I heard say it. This is, a, this is a very much shooters gyms. It's black. It's quiet. There's beautiful sight lines, and then these guys, right? Like anyone shooting on their home court, you play the same court every day. You know exactly the the rhythms, the bounce, the the feel of the floor, where it squeaks, where it doesn't. It's just the, the comfort and familiarity shooting on the same gym every day is going to make shooters better. So the broader question for, for when I hear you ask that is absolutely, this makes the Bucks probability, you know, I would say less. They're not an elite shooting team. They're they're way up there in terms of volume. They're a let it fly team. You know, how Robin Lopez shoots them, right? So. I guess that you'd sort of lump them in to say, hell, you know, sure, you know, Wes Matthews and Chris Middleton and, and Brooke Lopez and, and so forth and Corver could could just as easily make up for it. But I would say more likely it's a Jason Tatum, Kemba Walker, Duncan Robinson, Tyler Hero. You know, those are the players that scare me more than, a, you know, than Brooke Lopez and, and Cal Corver. So, um that being said, Daz, can you win games by shooting only three pointers? Can you ever? Do you have to go in the paint? Do you have to create your own ends? I guess that's the that's the theory that will be tested. Will the Bucks defense again lost number one in the league two years in a row? Will it will by its very nature in allowing less good three point shooters get their looks? Will that be another fatal flaw? And then we start to then draw some broader conclusions around. Holy shit! Does Bud need to rethink? you know, this elite, elite, elite rim protecting drop system and try to find a personnel and more switchability. So I don't want to go too far ahead, but that's mm. where this, I know this, where this conversation leads, right? It's, it's going to be a bud roster construction and whole defensive philosophy. If again, they lose because some team 
you know, shoots better, but quote unquote, the Bucks outplayed them, unquote. So, uh, yes, I think it introduces more risk, but it certainly isn't going to be. It's not because of Giannis. We're all more worried about his free throws than we are, you know, than the Bucks shooting three pointers does. Yeah, I mean, look, I'll, I'll say a couple of things just quickly on on that series. I mean, I think um, just looking, I mean, the Bucks shot thirty eight percent overall from three for the for the series, which normally you'd probably take. Giannis himself was at that percent, but that's not necessarily what's what might. Yeah, that that's not getting it done in comparison terms of doing. Let's see though, as the rounds go on and as the pressure mounts, even though we're in an empty gym, yeah, is it are these players going to feel the same pressure days in the Western Conference Finals in the empty gym than they would, you know, playing in front of twenty thousand people? Um, and I, and I think the answer would clearly be no, to me. So I think that's where things are going to be interesting, guys. That we and, and that's the old sort of adage isn't it that jump shooting teams don't win the NBA title now you know Golden State to some extent uh, can that theory you know although they won one and then lost the next one and then sort of had to get Kevin Durant in um, to win after that so I think that's to me going to be the big question um, to come for the Bucks and other teams um, you know as this goes on just to quickly to contrast that at the moment this is a before today's game, but Denver was shooting 43% from three and uh, Utah shooting 44% from three. So their two terms of really are yeah. lighting it up yeah. uh, in comparison. Quickly on Orlando, I was impressed with Vucevic this series. I thought he was outstanding. Um, you know, he just had no one else came came along for the ride. I mean, Fultz had some decent numbers in the series, but never really got going. Obviously, you talk about guys that, that can't shoot that's been his biggest um, problem. I thought maybe Terence Ross might have a game or two where he catches fire, but it just never really happened for them. Um, they just need to find Vucevic some help. I think the, the interesting thing's going to be with a team like Orlando, you're going to have the people on the you know, the Twitterati, as I call them, that go out there and say, oh, they need to trade Vucevic and things like that. I just think they need to keep Vucevic and try and get as much talent around them. And look, if you're if you're a six seven seed or whatever for the next few years and your first round of plus maybe if everything breaks right you get to the second round well so be it it's better than being at the bottom of the east like every other team in the decrepit eastern conferences just holding out hoping you get the the number one draft pick which again this year they've missed out on um, because the top two picks went west so I think it's I'd rather try yeah, and be competitive you, you do, with a guy you do feel bad. Yeah, it's just the injuries is probably the other big story is, which is normally be talking about, you know, that the toll of the season on these guys, you know, is, and it's a war of attrition, but you remember these guys just had four months off, right? So it's, it's, that's different. There are different types of, there's a different type of conversation wrapped around all the injuries we're starting to see, but obviously John Isaac with the non-contact injury, which we've talked about a lot, devastating knee injury, which, you know, threatens his medium term career trajectory and certainly the, the Magic, I think he's a perfect fit next to Vooch, right? Vooch is that stretch, made himself into a bit of a stretch five. Really great offensive game. And Isaac, right, that elite um, interior defender. It's just a, that's just a great, you know, it's your modern Ibaka and Marcus Saul combination, isn't it? Um, and he's out and and then cheap shot, uh, dare I say, thug Kyle Lowry injured Aaron Gordon. Right, and in an unbelievably cruel foul that I don't know how he didn't get suspended for it. 
and Gordon didn't play. I don't think he even played in the series no, he at didn't all. Play in the series at Daz. all. and so, so it, it would have been interesting. And so to to put a ribbon around Orlando's season, I feel bad that they're not going to have their full complement. Um, and you could see, right? It could see a very good story if you just had, if you had a healthy Gordon and, and a healthy John Isaac, and they go into this off season. They have to get rid of Fournier and, and Augustine, right? Augustine's a nice player, but you know he just has to do way too much for that team. Redo that backcourt um, and 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 get a wing or two, and you've got yourself something really interesting. It's probably not a top two or three team, but that's a team that could be like the next Indiana Daz with the right moves. But mm. dare I say, I think that John Isaac is going to set him way back, uh, mm. and I think Gordon has just always been miscast playing the three. Um, but um. Uh, they they battled valiantly and um, and just just a, one final point I guess from the Bucks perspective um, Middleton was terrible in that series and that's kind of elongated the you know the Middleton is crap in the playoffs uh, narrative you know yes he will torch uh, the Celtics or and others for a few games but he has these periods of two three four games where he's just way too comfortable being uh, Andrew Wiggins Anthony Davis just very happy to be off to the side and and hesitant and and just being aggressive and within the system and so he was bloody he was just a non-factor is the best way to say it in that series so that's the worrying thing now Bledsoe's got a tweaked hamstring Daz and so the margin for error obviously you know diminishes as as the playoffs run on and and the Bucks are by no means they're by no means um I think the juggernaut we would have expected back in March and April they're more more vulnerable because of the gyms, more vulnerable because of the shooting, more vulnerable because Giannis's free throws are still are still a problem. And unless there's a uh, a, a renaissance here in the next week with Chris Middleton, I think there's real questions about the the championship, you know, sort of um, moxie of this team if Middleton's not going off for for 25 a night. If he's doing this 17 and 12, you know, taking six shots, it's just forget it. There's just don't have enough. Mm. Then you're going to be asking Giannis to go truly 40, 20 every night. And, and that's just not sustainable. No. Oh, look, the portents aren't, aren't great for Milwaukee from that first round series, but I, I don't think we can read a heck of a lot into it because Orlando just were not, it wasn't a fair fight with Orlando. We've already having the injuries and it was always going to be an uphill battle for them. Yeah. Let's yeah. look at the other side of that, that part of the bracket with Miami, Indiana. I predicted Indiana would win this. Um, they obviously didn't. They got swept. Uh, I thought it was a bit harsh to find Nate McMillan straight afterwards uh, the series, uh, given that Sabonis was out and Vic Oladipo clearly not the player that he was, whether he'll ever get back to anywhere, anything like the player that he was before that horrific knee injury, we don't know yet. Um, there's talk about Mike D'Antoni going there. Just quickly, I mean, what what do you think about that that roster for a Mike D'Antoni type offense? Or are we, are we getting a bit too far ahead of ourselves? Because there wasn't a heck of a lot to take away from this series other than that Miles Turner continues to be maybe the softest big man uh, in the NBA. <laughs> yeah, yeah, look, I'm I'm still a, I don't know what you saw on the Pacers, Taz. <laughs> that's just I, I think you maybe just being contrarian, um, just to you know <laughs> stick a take out there. But uh, uh, look, I think it's just a uh, I guess it's it's a tough one. Nate's been around a while. Um, he's a good coach and he gets a lot out of his players. I think you also look at the development of guys and what they've done with, you know, TJ Warren, what they've done with Aaron holiday, you know, obviously tried to scale Malcolm Brogdon 
you know, Old Depot obviously is Thrive. So they're getting a lot, you know, toward maximizing the roster he does have. But clearly there's something that that we're not seeing, you know, outside that there's perhaps something inside that, whether it's uh, his, again, adaptability, whether it's strategy, whether it's aggressiveness, what, whatever it is about playoff basketball. But you just, it's a harsh way. It's a harsh to get sick this Daz. So I, I think that's, I kind of, I guess I'd better to kind of get rid of soon and a little bit too late, i.e. Jason Kidd and not firing him that year. You know, you know, rip, totally ripped a, a developmental chance from the Bucks franchise. So hmm. I guess I think that's I think it's probably it feels like it's about time. Coaching's not a fair business. Just ask Dave Yeager and, and countless others. Um, uh, um, you know, in this in this profession, as to Dan Tony, you know, why not? He's proven he can buddy coach, um, and I think he Dan Tony might have fun. Might have fun there if if Vic is healthy and motivated, that could be a bit of fun for him. Obviously, he thrives in PNR um, offenses. Um, obviously, with Steve Nash and James Harden, it's easy to make the coach look great. But no question, he'll put his young backcourt um, in the best positions to succeed. And so, I think if if Vic is truly back and healthy, um, that could be an appealing situation for D'Antoni. Um, if he's not, though, you know that's going to be a it's a six seedy kind of team, you know. If, you got Milwaukee, Boston, Toronto, probably Philly. Well, I think the Nets will be up there next year, yeah. Yeah, the next, you know, Nets will be up there next year as well, I think. It's fair to say. It's like, oh, yeah, does D'Antoni just want to coach, you know, just to earn a paycheck? Eh, it remains to be seen, but that's not the worst job. I don't think if I'm D'Antoni, that's probably not his best fit. Um, I think there'll be other jobs. Um, you know, wouldn't he want to go coach in New Orleans, for example? Mm. Wouldn't that be more... You know, more fun for you know an extremely experienced guy like that. Um, there's the, the Popovich, not to Indiana, but there's some. I don't know if it's just bored NBA people, you know, thinking out loud. Or if there's any any kernels of substance, to the fact he might coach elsewhere, but um, this would be more of a pop franchise to me if you truly just wanted to retire. Well, the pop to the Nets is the one that's being touted at the moment, so. Yeah. But uh, yeah, is it to yeah, manage the superstars? But uh, yeah, I can't see it. I just back to the pay- there's no no upside the pop of going somewhere else no. at this point. No, no. Well, look, the Heat looked like the Heat. They looked good. Dragic is Dragic's You know, Butler looks good. Their shooters are shooting. So the um, Indiana, nice try, nice bubble way to torpedo the Bucks um, first round draft pick. That'll make him feel. <laughs> A little bit better was we were pegging at 18, 19, and ended up at number 24. So a little moral victory for them. They think they found a real real player here in uh, TJ Warren. Good for him. Um, but, yeah, uh, let's see what happens with a new set, a new coach there and a new philosophy. And I think that will no doubt directly relate to um, the, this question of can you play Sabonis and Turner together and why don't you trade one, mm. you know, and get some value and, and so a new coaching philosophy no doubt will probably go hand in hand with some personnel changes uh potentially quite substantial i'd imagine in yeah, the off season well, so, five five um, straight first round exits i think was probably the main reason why they looked at at moving on from him but uh i, I thought the circumstances were against him um but uh, look i understand i understand they weren't the terribly decision, competitive but... though Daz. these these weren't like these weren't like crunch time losses. No, no, they weren't. 
it was pretty poor. It was pretty poor. They got out coached as well. Um, so, but look, well, I think if you if you took a step back, Vic was not healthy. Um, it took a big punt on Brogdon, and if you don't, if you put aside for the second, what was the expectations heaped on him? You have to say that's that's a pretty successful, you know, personnel move. Uh, obviously, T.J. Warren. So I think the paces are feeling pretty good, you know, for where they were compared to last year. Um, if I'm if I'm honest, right? Mm. So I think there's some reason for optimism. And then back to the point, Heat are coming in full full force, fully healthy. So you got a Bucks and Heat team again. We Bloodsoe's got a bit of a, a hamstring, which could really hurt that pick and roll defense. But two teams mostly at full force coming together here. What's going to be a really interesting uh, East semis series? Well, let's quickly talk about that series because what impressed me with Milwaukee, uh, sorry, with Miami in that series. My worry with Miami is that Jimmy Butler gets out there and says, "I'm the best player in the NBA, and I have to take over the game, and I'm going to shoot it 30 times tonight or whatever." And he he certainly didn't do that against Indiana. I wonder if he, he's going to think he needs to do it against Milwaukee. But if he plays the way he played, where well, he really was probably more impactful on the defensive end than he was on the offensive end, and he kind of picked his moments uh, on offense. I mean, Dragic was their top scorer, but I think they had Hero, they had Bam Adebayo, you know, Robertson's knocking down, shots at a good clip, you know, shooting 44% from three, etc. So... That, to me, the way they balance their team, I do think they have a coaching edge in this series, Daz, with Spo over um, Buds, and that's not not a criticism of Buds. I just think Spo is one of the, the great coaches we've had in the league in the last 20 years, and he's, he's still coaching at the top of his game. So there's a, not too many teams that would go into a series against the Bucks and feel like we might have a coaching edge here. I think, I think Miami do. Uh, I said a while ago, I thought that, the team that Milwaukee should fear the most in the East is Miami. I'm still not 100% sold. I think Toronto are quite a good side, as the secret sound goes off in the background for our listeners at home. And then we've got... But the, the worry that I have, I guess, for, for Miami is, um, you know, are, are the Bucks going to just say, we're going to choose our poison and Iguodala's going to be open and... Linus going to be open, and can these guys, mate, and Jay Crowder, and that are those guys going to be able to hit enough shots? Because I think that's the difference between Miami winning and losing is going to be does Iguodala hit the five open threes they give him a game, or whatever the number might be. Do you know what I mean? Like the the Iguodala's, Jay Crowder's, Khalil Linus. That's who Miami. That's who Milwaukee's going to leave open, and they're going to trust the math that these guys aren't going to hit enough open shots. I mean, do you feel like that? That's going to be not maybe not the key to the series, but one of the keys to this series. Oh yeah, that's a, absolutely a key point. I mean, it's I mean Iguodala and Jay Crowder were you'd argue you know, acquired specifically for this series, right? Which is that rugged defender, uh, veteran guys, uh, mentally very, very tough. Ironically, both Marquette guys. Um, interesting to see them with Miss Matthews on the floor um, as well, another Marquette player. But uh, absolutely, that's going to be a huge, that's going to be a huge factor. Um, that tends to be what beats these bucks, right? Is when, you know, because their best player is not going to be better than Giannis. That's, that's a fact. That's just not going to happen. But they're, hell, they're two through five on any given night. Can be better than the Bucks two through five. There's no question. And that's why the, I think there's so much pressure um, on the defensive end, which I, you know, it's probably more of a system thing. Um, like for example, would Bud really go crazy and start, you know, inserting a lineup with 
Dante DiVincenzo and, and DJ Wilson just to do switching, just to switch. You know, I can't. He could, but it's just so out of character. You know, he's not Nick Nurse and Eric Spolster. He has, they haven't built their team around, you know, the switching and versatility. They've built their team to be great, be elite at what they're elite at and hope that's, that's the best. Because you're absolutely right. If the if those role players from Miami are are hitting, that's going to be a major major boon. But um, uh, if you look at the top three scores, or the you know, the backcourt, it's Dragic, Butler, and Hero, right? The top three scores in that Indiana series, and Duncan Robinson obviously number five. But the real thing, right? So that's the the real advantage. What people when you talk up Miami is is not just that secondary play, but it's the fact they can play versatile. They can go quickly into a, you know, a Linux or Buddy Myers Leonard, right, at the five and pull Brooke Lopez off, you know, out of the interior. That's why I have to sort of say, bam, yes, for all of what we talk about, his effect on defense, he's just as ineffective, right, um, on the other end of the floor because it just, you know, that allows Brooke and Giannis to be, you know, the best in the NBA at what they do. And so that for me is where the coaching really comes in is how will Spo, you know, pull Bam off the floor, go with five shooters on the floor, and really force the Bucks then to take you know, to take both Lopez's out of the game, potentially, because they just cannot, they don't have that foot speed, right? And so what will that do with Giannis at the five and, you know, and and um, in a smaller lineup around him will be fascinating. So that's where I think Miami has, they can almost dictate tempo and matchups a bit, Daz. Um, with their with their personnel in a way that Bud I think will I think Spol will lead that stuff and Bud will only react if what Spolster is doing is winning and, and is effective. So well, I that think for the, me is the chess matches. Meisner didn't even sense. play in the in the Pacers series, but I think you can certainly expect the same because I think and this is what we talked about when we talked about this potential series uh, a number of episodes oh, ago. No does, was the different looks that Miami can throw. And they've got a guy in Bantam Adebayo that is one of the few guys in the league, maybe the only guy in the league, that you can say he, he can defend Giannis one-on-one. And he, the thing about Bam Adebayo is he can defend without fouling. He only averages two and a half fouls a game. One, so that's one of the key things. But as you said, can they balance that on the offensive end where he is going to be a bit of a liability because I guarantee you Giannis isn't going to be too worried about having to defend Bam Adebayo if the shoe's on the other foot. So that that's going to be an interesting dynamic and the chess moves between those two coaches is going to be something really fascinating to see. And I do, and I just think the number of different looks that Spoke and throw out there at Milwaukee is going to keep them off balance for this entire series. I mean, I'd, I'd be stunned if this is, if this is an easy five-game series or something from Milwaukee. I think strap yourself in, Daz. This is going to be a six-seven game <clears throat> war uh, against a pretty well-prepared. And I like the, you know, for Miami, I love the fact that Dragic is looking like Dragic again. That that adds an extra element. He's a guy that can get under their skin um, with some of his little, you know, dare I say it, uh, gamesmanship, <laughs> shall we just say it, put it that way. Uh, Dirty, yeah. From yeah. time to time. Yeah. So, um, and... Is Giannis going to get in foul trouble? That this is always this is a continual problem. I think that you might see because he there's there's just no question in my mind as he is officiated differently. It's kind of like the Shaq rule where I think Shaq was officiated differently to his to his detriment career to a large extent. 
And I think uh, Giannis is the same. I just think Giannis does not get away with things that other guys get away with yet in the league. And I can see situations in this series where Giannis picks up those cheap fouls early and Miami are a team that they're going to be trying to get under his skin, going to be playing up the contact. I mean, is that a concern for you as well uh, from the Bucks' point of view? And are you honest, expecting less, a tough less series? So, less so in this series, just on the Giannis question, because... Who, who really in Miami scares you going to the rim, right? It's not Dragic. It's not Tyler Hero. It's not Duncan Robinson. It's not Crowder. It's, not, it's nobody. You know, maybe Jimmy, you know, he can. Jimmy's good at getting to the foul line, but, I, you know, Giannis is so much bigger than him. So I'm actually, in this series, I'm probably less worried about. Um, well, you're forgetting the, the offensive in, fouls in the that he seems to have four called on him a game. <laughs> Some, sometimes. Well, yeah, that's with the, the, the flopping, and that's one of the criticisms is the. The, the Bucks fans want Bud to challenge these these flops, which seem to happen at least three to five times a game. Some with no call, and some with you know with the call. And so the you know the char you know block charge stuff is is a very real conversation. But I guess my point was right versus a a Toronto series with you know with the guys that they'll throw at you and the athletes that they got running towards towards the basket and Gasol you know, kind of um, throwing his body all around the interior where you got Giannis and loose ball follows stuff as well. So I actually think this series should be, you know, probably the one I'm least worried about his foul trouble. But, um, uh, but but I guess on the flip side, right, is that, you know, is is if Miami's not hitting those three-point shots, where does the offense come from? And I guess that's that's the big thing, is if they don't start, if they don't hit these threes and they're not they're not shooting well, that's where the Bucks will have a huge advantage defensively off the defensive glass and tons of transition down. So when what we saw in the one game where they did play in the bubble, they outscored Miami. Again, it was out without Jimmy Butler, but it was an absolute blitz when this when the three pointers aren't falling. And so that's where I guess if Miami really is going to have to shoot 40% from deep on high volume for the series, I think, because they just they, by the foot they have the versatility, but I it just their shot creation is not not a strength. So um, they're going to need Dragic at full strength. If if Bloodsoe is injured, that that could be a uh, that could be an underrated factor for them getting you know offense off the dribble and breaking the Bucks at the point of attack and collapsing them, and then maybe getting some of these fouls that you they were hinting at. But um, mm. uh, yeah, look, it's not going to be an easy series. This is an extremely well coached, extremely veteran team. They got Jimmy Butler, who's a closer. Dragic, who's a closer. Um, you've got. Guys who proven to be pretty fearless, young dudes like Hero and Robinson, they don't seem to be phased, you know, by by the moment. So, um, I do expect I expect a, a six at least a six game series. Um, it wouldn't shock me if the Heat go up two one in the series, and the Bucks really have to dig deep mm. and fight their way back from a two one deficit. So, my prediction was something like, if you go by game, it'd be Bucks go up one zero, but then Miami take two in a row in Game Four. Game four is your war, right? That's the. It's kind of what actually I'm. I'm kind of bracing for is the heat to go up, and force the Bucks to you know really really dig deep. But um, yeah, it should be entertaining. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll take the Bucks in in six as well. So uh, it sounds like we're yeah. both on a similar path there. Let's quickly look at the other series. We've got the Raptors and the Celtics. Just to touch quickly on uh, those two first round series, both sweeps. Uh, the Nets we talked about in the last time, they're all about next year. Let's see who they end up hiring as a coach uh, and, and what they look like with Kyrie and KD out there. Uh, and then um, the 
And the Raptors looked very good during that series, but really uh, the Nets didn't. Again, not a fair fight. The Nets had so many injuries uh, within that. Uh, the Celtics, they ended the process such as it is for Brett Brown. So Brett Brown got fired after that was another sweep. And, uh, you know, the, the game three of that series, Daz, was summed up the process just perfectly to me with Philly uh, leading by three with the ball. And it was, uh, I think, four straight turnovers. And uh, it cued a 10 run for the Celtics who ended up winning the game comfortably. Uh, and Joel Embiid with a couple of, horrible, horrible turnovers. Uh, but he did, uh, yeah. to be fair to Embiid, he put up good numbers. And he, he played in spurts in the series, but the times he was really good. But probably they were asking him to do a little bit too much at the end of the day. Um, and Tobias Harris crashed the boards really well in this series, but uh, his shot wasn't going at all. I mean, they just, if it wasn't for the fact that they were killing the Celtics on the rebounds, um, the, the series, even though it was a sweep, it would have been an even more embarrassing sweep. So, Brett Brown moves on. We've, we've spoken, we've spent a lot of time, Daz, on the on the Philadelphia 76ers. We might leave any further comment about them to our off-season pods, unless you wanted to pour a little bit of final dirt on them uh, before you, you launch into your preview which of the series, which started no, today. No, it's... And you've got nothing, nothing to add about the, the 76ers. Well, I mean, you've, I'm just... I'm 100% with you. Is every every meaningful Philadelphia 76ers conversation is now about the entire philosophy of the franchise and do you trade Embiid or Simmons and who's gonna you know, who's gonna coach the team and will Brand get fired? So there are all those big questions, which is not the time. And I think to no one's surprise, they you know they had problems as a team and between March and August did absolutely nothing to rectify it. So and that that for me is the untold story of how. You know, this team had four or five months, you know, and all the hubris that came out of them um, and have been coming out of them for, for God knows how long is that for me was justification enough for, for Brown Brown to go. There's just absolutely nothing different about them when they needed to be quite different. Oh, exactly. He, he ran out yeah. of ideas. I think the, the front office didn't... His voice is lost there. The yeah. interesting thing, I think, from that is the front office ran out of patience with this team and put all the chips into the centre... And, and it's always what we say, isn't it? you got to know where you're at. They thought, well, if we make these moves, we're, we're close to the title, let's make these moves and push us over the edge. And in reality, they were, they were a long way from being a genuine contender and probably need to sit back, watch how them two players, Simmons and Embiid particularly, develop together and then make some moves based on that. And I think they ended up making moves on incomplete information and they've ended. this is where they've ended up. Um, yeah, and, and took a this bet was, on the wrong the, players the, and things like that with, yeah, with I mean, Harris over Butler, etc. The ribbon, I'll, the ribbon I'll put on this is that <clears throat> uh, this historic history will judge this era, of this last four or five years, last four years in particular, is maybe one of the greatest failings of any NBA franchise ever. Because what the process obviously did was give this team and this front office and this coaching staff the greatest margin of error ever. Right. <laughs> completely fucking blew every they blew it on every level it is it is even in this moment probably still underreported and underappreciated just how gargantuan and seismic colossal consistent uh repeated series of failures that led them to this point is i think Ray's actually underestimated um how much they did wrong to get here and so We'll recap 
probably the last <laughs> 20 most painful transactions that they did at another point in time. They went out with a whimper. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know when you get a Bucks fan empathizing for Joel Embiid, you know it's bad, right? <laughs> it just it just felt it just felt Jason Kitty and Joe Prunty. It just he just really felt he really felt for for Joel. I really truly did at that you know towards the end of that series. But kudos to Boston for just ripping through in very businesslike fashion. And I was obviously recording here after the first game where they tore through Toronto and had a point point lead in the second quarter. That game was never close in game one of that series as well. So um, like what we said about um, Milwaukee and, and Miami, Boston and Kemba looks fine as what you were worried about his knee a little bit here in the bubble. He looks perfectly fine. So this of all the, I guess the war of attrition starting up, you know, at least these three, the top three teams, uh, these three teams anyway, are, are, are even Toronto's not got no injuries. These four teams are really healthy right now. So that'll be fun. This will be a fun series to watch a Boston and in Toronto go at it. Now you had probably tipped Toronto, if I'm not mistaken, in this series. I Is tipped Toronto. Right? I'm not too fussed. Look, game one come down to Toronto yeah. were rusty. They're a team. I, I don't know if any team relies on shooting more than they do uh, in the bubble, and they just they couldn't hit. They couldn't throw it in the ocean today. Twenty five percent from three. Yeah, you, you look. Boston fans would probably say, well, let's let's wait and see game two and see if it happens again. If it happens again, obviously now it's a, more of a problem. But it just feels like a bit of a clunky game one. We've seen it before with Toronto in particular, obviously with their history in game ones. Um, it, it even felt a little bit like Milwaukee-Boston game one uh, from last season. So I wouldn't be getting too carried away with what yeah. happened today. Yeah. What I will say is that they're genuinely deep. Boston. I mean, they're going five deep at the moment, and that's with Haywood out. But Tatum looks fantastic. And if Tatum didn't bring him, and in game three, Tatum was terrible against Philly, and it was Kemba. Kemba just came in. Jalen Brown's hitting big shots. Marcus Smart does it on both ends. Uh, Thice actually was was at least competing against uh, Embiid, even though obviously it's a bit of a mismatch when those two get together. Um, so, and, and, you know, Kant is still not that great off the bench, but some of the other bench guys like Wanamaker, etc., they, they give them decent minutes. So you like to see a deep rotation with a playoff team, and I think Boston will certainly tick that box. It's just, are they going to get the, the level of play they need out of Tatum? And, and Walker and Brown when they need it. Yeah. Um, that's going to be the key, I think, to this series. Uh, I, I think this series, look, okay, game one, bit of a throwaway game, Boston take it. Um, this series will sort of start, you know, games three, four, five, that's when we're really going to see, you know, get into the mood of the basketball. I certainly expect the Raptors to bounce back. I like I like the Raptors in this series. I just think they've got too, they're, they're going to have too many options and I just like, I think, I don't think they're going to shoot 25% again and let Boston get out um, to such a big load. But Nick Nurse would be concerned about the ease at which Boston scored in that first quarter this morning because uh, they they really did not come out ready to play in the first quarter, 39-23 at the end of one. And uh, Nick Nurse would certainly want to make sure that doesn't happen again um, for game two. So what, what's your sense, though, of this series? I mean, do you, you it sounds like you're more, maybe more leaning towards I, Boston. Yeah, I picked Boston in this, right? And as much as it's just from a matchup perspective, where hey, we've I've been going, we both and probably the world's been banging on about how good Toronto's look mm-hmm. and how they have this really really high floor. But I just think this is a really this is a really bad matchup 
for them. I, I think it's just because of this, right? The shot creation that Boston has is is something that Toronto just simply doesn't, right? When Siakam is your leading scorer, and Siakam has been a worse version of Chris Middleton, in you know, in well, certainly for, maybe not this entire entire bubble or the entire playoffs, but certainly it was today. Is when he isn't creating, and there's plenty of defenders on Boston to to take him one on one, and Marcus Smart is playing mother-in-law defense in Kyle Lowry. And he's not penetrating anything. There's not a lot of creativity in that Toronto defense. Their offense has to come from creating turnovers and havoc on the defensive end. And it just isn't happening because there's so many, again, so many players who can shoot off the balance, particularly obviously Tatum and Kemba on, on that end. And then the post game, like of the, of the canters, like you mentioned, freaking Daniel Tice had 16 rebounds today. Dan. I was like, where, where the hell did that come from? And so I just think it's a bad matchup for Toronto. I really do. So I, I, I'm probably less optimistic than you. I think I think this 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 problem will continue for Toronto. Is how on earth are they going to generate, you know, the 115 to 20 points they're going to need to to outscore Boston? Who's going to get theirs? So um, I'm probably I'm actually that's going to be a pretty short series, but um, uh, which then comes back to the. Again, if we pick our predictions ahead, I think the Bucks match up way better against Boston than they do Toronto. So Yeah, I think if you're a Bucks fan, you certainly would want to see Boston. You'd prefer to see Boston the next round than, than Toronto. Mm. Um, even if it's only yeah, for the ghosts of, of Eastern Conference Finals past. Uh, look, I mean, I'd say Van Vliet shot 56% in the first round. He could, again, the guy that couldn't throw in the ocean today. Let's wait and see what happens in game two of that series. Yeah, it was um, weird. It was. It's fair enough. Yeah, and if it. it's a, if it's a the same, we see the same thing again. Then I'll, um, I'll quickly jump on the Boston bandwagon and maybe re-record this part of the pod. Does um, so my tipping is not completely out as it has been for a first round. Let's move now to the Western uh, before we wrap this up. On the LA teams, look, the Lakers very similar to the Bucks. Does drop game one then said, okay, let's get serious. Um, Portland looked tired to me from about the, the halfway through the first quarter of game two onwards, and they never really got back into the series. They, they played okay, I thought, in game five um, and went with the Lakers for a bit. Did, did you see anything from the Lakers, though, in what you saw of this series that maybe gives you a moment's pause about their ability to, to sort of get, get out of this Western Conference and go to the NBA Finals? Yeah. It's just, it's everything we've talked about for the, I guess, probably since the, maybe the beginning of the regular season. It's just, it, their supporting cast is so bad, but they play enough deep and they hustle enough um, and they make just enough plays per game to let, you know, AD and lose their breath. But it is, you know, their margin for error is also very slim. I mean, they're literally relying on Dwight Howard, JaVale McGee, Alex Caruso, you know, um, KCP. Like, these are players where J.R. Smith, like, you'd have to, if you're LeBron, you're holding your breath just about every time, every every time down the court. So it, it, they have LeBron and AD, which will take them. Um, I don't think there's going to be any problem the second, for the second round for them, whether that is... Um, Houston or okay. Oh, sorry, that's right. They're not matched up against Denver, no. Utah. Others said they they wax Denver and Utah. Sorry, it's it's Houston. Oh, <laughs> that'll be 
that'll be taxing. We'll cross that bridge, but it's the old story. No new news here, Daz. It's that they're just their margin for error is small. Um, Braun, you know, is still the most intelligent player in the league um, without without argument. And it's just God. I can just you can't you just in, just picture a scenario where you know he, we've got the iconic image of him, you know, with the gigantic shrug scream emoji with J.R. Smith in the past. Can't, can't you just imagine it again with an Alex Caruso or a Kyle Kuzma? Like there's going to be crunch time minutes in the playoffs when shit gets hard and someone other than LeBron or AD is going to need to make a play or make a shot. And Danny Green looks almost done. Mm. And we, we talked about Danny Green not being allowed to dribble two years ago. Daz, his handle, like he should be playing net ball. Really? It's just, it, it, that's where I, it's that same old story for LeBron is great. You've got the most talented running mate you've ever had. Maybe, maybe apologies to Kyrie that one season, but with the, but man, oh man, oh man, that cast. Cause I just go, how is that going to match up against the wing heavy, um, Kawhi, Paul George, um, Marcus Morris, you know, Trez, Beverly, Lou, just how is that all their big jump giant jumbo lineups going to match up against the, particularly the Clippers mm. and then particularly the Rockets. I go, what are you going to do when Dwight and JaVale can't play? Like, what's that? What's that team look like? And you're going to talking big minutes then for the again the Caruso's, Rondo's, um, KCPs, etc. And I think God doesn't that favor doesn't that favor Houston? So, so again, I'm sorry, nothing terribly new, Daz. Um, nothing terribly new. Uh, I was happy to see Dame have had a moment in the sun there in in Game One, but yeah, the the, the Blazers were. I think that was the. I think getting to the playoffs was was their championship. I mean, that was their, all those elimination games and getting into the playoffs and winning game one. I think game one was their title. Mm. <laughs> they, <laughs> they had which the call the playoffs off then, the exactly. <laughs> uh, look, a couple of quick yeah, things yeah. on that. Yeah. Uh, Anthony Davis shooting 39% from three and, and LeBron shooting 47%. And I only bring that up to the point, I think they, <laughs> they, they will both need to be continuing to shoot at that sort of clip. Uh, if, if they're going Good to point. win the title from here. And just something else to keep an eye on, they only shot 70% at the line. They were not great at the free throw line uh, as a team in that series, and it's just something to watch because they were not a good free throw shooting team during the regular season either. So that might be an Achilles heel that could comes back, come back and bite them uh, in the backside uh, in the next round. The next round is going to get more difficult, Daz, because you touched on it. We, we expect... I mean, do you expect Houston to, to take care of OKC? That's that series of 3-2 with Houston. This is another one where I've probably got it wrong. I thought OKC would beat Houston. Uh, they OKC just have not... I thought OKC would work Houston out in this series, and they haven't. They look as confused as ever. And if it's not uh, Dennis Schroeder who's shot the ball, you talk about guys shooting the ball unsustainably well, Schroeder's shot at lights out this series... If it's not for Schroeder sort of pulling something out of his backside at the end of the shot clock, they look completely clueless, as on offense. Yeah, yeah. I feel pretty good because I called this way before this. I go, Schroeder was the key to success for them, and I mean, he's not creating, right? Um, it's just way too tough for them to get anything. It is a, I think I joked you know, with, um, when Schroeder's not due, basically like Chris Paul playing with four Yasovas. There's just, there's just no nothing. No shot creation, no fluidity, no movement. Um, the 
multiple worlds talking about Lou Dort, who's been terrific defensively on Harden, but is every bit as of Robeson apparently on the offensive end as um, he's a, he's becoming a black hole. Gallinari has kind of disappeared. He just doesn't have this, the foot speed to attack you know, all the closeouts of Houston defenders. And so Gallo has been really disappointing and how he's been a bit of a, a shrinking violet against a team he could be right bullying. Well, that's never really been his game, but you'd love to see him even get a little bit of, dare I say, a bit of Brooke Lopez, get a little bit of fire, you know, get inside, do a little post up, do some high post stuff, but it's just not how Evans using him. And then Adams is his borderline unplayable, unfortunately. Like he does, you know, when he's in the game and it's it's working and that, that one five pick and roll with Chris Paul is working. He does create, you know, some seams and does hit the offensive glass, but it's just he's just too slow, you know, to chase Covington and God fucking Jeff Green's jacking up threes, you know, like nobody's business to as just Adams just can't be tracking tracking his guys. So mm. yeah, I think Houston I think Houston will close him out. Russ didn't look great in his first game of the series. That's the other thing to consider. Russ hasn't played up until game game five was the first game he played in the whole series, Daz. So um, I would expect Russ to get, you know, to get better, you know, as he feels gets his kind of his legs back. So um, I don't think something weird would have to happen. Maybe Harden foul trouble or Russ has, you know, a two for 18 with nine turnovers game. And, you know, and, you know, Houston can go cold, no question. They can just, they can go 10 for 50 you know, from three-point land. So it's possible, but I, I think they'll close it out. I think I sort of just look like OKC didn't – I don't know if they believe they could win anymore, Daz. I just sort of saw the confidence, which says a lot about a Chris Paul team. I just – there's something – something happened to them as well. I just don't uh, – again, that's a Well, you wonder one of those teams. When the, when the exit door's there, especially in this bubble, and, they, and they're thinking, you know what, we could lose or go home, a go home might not look – like that unattractive an option uh, for some of these guys. There was a great game in this series. Game four was one of the best playoff games that you'll you'll see. That was just a fantastic yeah. game where Shea hit the the big shot uh, at the end of the game, and Chris Paul, who who really done not much in the whole series, he just sort of caught fire down the stretch of game four. So game four was certainly one. Um, and, and at that point, too, too, you kind of thought, oh, well, maybe OKC have figured this out. And then uh, they came out and just laid a massive egg in Game 5, uh, where they only scored 80 points for the entire game in that one. So that was uh, that was, that was a disappointing response. Yeah, they, Schroeder did get just uh, ejected in that bit, one, which hurt It looked them. a little bit... That, that hurt massively, but I don't think that it wouldn't have been... It wouldn't have changed the result, but it might yeah. not have made, made such a blow. They just had, had that Portland look about it. Maybe that's just the one game, but I I just I don't see them winning two in a row now, right? Maybe they steal game six here, but I, I just don't see them winning two in a row. That's my that's my feeling. Um, I don't know. Do you think they can – do you see a path, though, right? Do you see a path? Uh, can you see a type of game where they, you know, where they actually – you know, do they need Harden to go seven for twenty-four with you know two for fifteen from three points? Well, they, they need, just... and that's what happened in this game. I mean, they just need Houston to just go cold and miss. Yeah. I think Houston in this game miss like fifteen shots in a row, and that's what they they desperately need to happen. But Houston just haven't been missing. I mean, it's been Jeff, Jeff Green. Harden's played well actually, and Harden hasn't forced it. I mean, we talked about Jimmy Butler not forcing. I think Harden. 
has done what he's needed to do uh, without, you know, without overdoing and shooting the ball 30 times a game. He's actually got other guys involved. Eric Gordon's played well, um, and you certainly expect better from Russ. Russell had just went out there for a little bit of a runaround. He's played off ball quite a bit, um, only played the 24 minutes, so I think it was just to get some miles under his legs as much as anything else uh, in game Game four, yeah. oh, sorry, game five. So I expect Houston will win tomorrow. I'd, I'd be disappointed in, okay, so particularly Gallinari is just not, not been a factor at all uh, in any of the games thus far. I, I thought maybe he would, you know, I just thought there'd be some sort of wrinkle. I thought the ball movement would be a bit more crisp. There's been, they've sort of just played Houston's style of, of ball, Daz, quite frankly. And yeah. obviously Houston is shooting yeah. a lot more threes, but um, there's still been you know a lot of ISO, not much ball movement, not much imagination going into the the offense. And um, I think you know when you're playing when you're playing this Houston defense, it, it sort of it seems it seems easy when you're playing against these small ball teams. You got a couple of taller guys that can get their own shots off, but uh, it's it's not not as easy as you think once you're actually in there. In there having to execute it, and um, okay, so they haven't executed well at all, and none of them have shot the ball well. I mean, they're shooting the ball thirty percent from three for the entire series, so that's not going to get it done. Um, well, that's a worry. Houston, Houston isn't shooting well. Houston's thirty six percent. Houston's only shooting thirty six percent from three on, for the series you know? on very high volume. <laughs> on very, sure, very sure. High volume. But I'm, um, all I'm saying is they're not exactly hot. They're not playing. They're not playing great. Eric Gordon's been terrible. Seven for thirty-seven for the series. You know, it's Jeff Green, sixteen for thirty-four. Sixteen for thirty-four. Crazy. If I, you know, question with another question without knows, but the you know the, the player with the second most minutes played in the series behind Harden for Houston is Daniel House. Daniel House is, is playing thirty-five minutes a game. Jeff Green's playing thirty-four minutes a green a game, and that you know that's that's just remarkable. It really is. As much as I can't stand this the cheating and the flopping in the style of play is remarkable it's, it's remarkable you win games with daniel house and jeff green playing 70 minutes well harden's a game. only scoring 32 a game like that's for, for harden that's below i know what you he joke only but expect. yeah he's actually pretty been pretty efficient yeah, yeah, yeah. and he, ha- <laughs> well, he hasn't been yeah. to the three foul line anywhere near as much as he'd normally get to either um he's only i think he's attempted what 43 in the series so for him Gee, that's that's just a Thursday night normally for Harden. Yeah, he's not turning the ball over. Yeah, he's only, you know, not even like, barely like, three turnovers a game isn't as bad isn't bad when you've got the ball in your hand. So yeah, so I think Houston's going to close it out. Yeah, and yeah. then and then we'll look, I guess, unless to see what Russ, they they do against unless Russ shoots them out of it. But I don't think that's going to happen tomorrow. I think Russ will do what what they need to do. And look, they're having fun, Daz. I mean, there's there's no question they're fully engaged. They're they're enjoying their basketball, um, and yeah, you, you sort of look at the Harden and you think, "Geez, would it be fun to play with that guy?" Well, they they certainly seem to be enjoying um, what he's bringing to the table at the moment. So it's it's Dantoni's last stand. Let's see if he can he can how far he can take it. I mean, do you do you give him a puncher's chance against the Lakers in the next round, assuming they get through? Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's where we started you know, with high you know high beta in the nerd terms, but. You shoot 55 three-pointers a game. You know, there's going to be nights when 22 of them go. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, look, these match up so terribly against L.A., but I think they'll win two games. I think they will. I think they'll be enough where they, they'll scare L.A., but I just, 
Anthony Davis could go 50 and 25. Like, <laughs> like how on earth a little, little Robert Covington or little Jeff green. Like you just want, you just want LeBron and AD just repost, you know, repost kind of constantly. Um, so it just, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to the style, the, the contrast and styles of that next series, mm. if nothing else. Yeah. Um, and the good news about between that series, one of them will lose, which will make me feel good. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, the, the, making this feel good was the other two series. I think the Clippers Dallas, which was an entertaining six game series. Um, you talk about great, great playoff games. There's you caught the, uh, the Luka Doncic coming out. I moment sure with, um, what, what game was that? Was that game four? I gave that series. Game four. I was game four or game three. And then game three. I, I game, game four, sorry, because it okay. made it 2 2. Yeah, because I thought it tied it up 2 2, which then said, yeah, here we go. An amazing game. I mean, that, just the coming out party of Luka Doncic, and, you know, to be fair to the Clippers after that, it went 2 2. They took care of business pretty comfortably in the last two with Pazingas out. Uh, again, another another leg injury for Pazingas, so plenty of team-building questions for the Mavericks um, going forward. But, to, gee, what Doncic did in that game four, that's that's an NBA classic, Daz. Um, well, uh, one for the ages, wasn't it? It, so it was one on five, and he, he won. Yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty special. Um, look, there's not been a lot of defense played in this series, let's be honest, though. So I go, I don't know what Kawhi the fuck is doing, but he certainly isn't He certainly isn't defending. Um, neither is Paul George, but uh, the Dallas Mavericks haven't even thought about defending. Right? They give up 154 points in regulation in Game 5. <laughs> went, yeah, that sounds about right for what Dallas has been doing. So um, obviously with no zinger. In that one, but yeah, look in a in a uh, um, in a vacuum, that game four was was something else, and heck, even the first four games of the series have been all were really, you know, they're high scoring, but they're really competitive, and you can just see this Dallas offense, just how remarkable it is with, with Lucas running, Luca running things, but um, there's just again, like I think every maybe it's the bubble, Daz, but there's and, and Paul George was pretty honest about his his struggles in the bubble and Montrezl Harrell's, you know, fresh back from the bubble. And, um, you know, Lou Williams was at the strip club and had his own issues and, it, and Doc Rivers and the burden he's buried, carried, you know, being a bit of one of these very vocal, you know, coaches. It's just not, the Clippers aren't having fun as, I know that sounds stupid and esoteric. And we used to use that phrase and playing with joy about the, about the Warriors and maybe no NBA team, NBA team is really having fun. You mentioned a bit about Houston. I dare I say they probably are quite enjoying, enjoying this a little bit, but there's something also not exactly, which far be for, for me to say after they score 154 points, but either the Clippers aren't firing in all cylinders yet, or there's something not quite, there's not quite gelling there. I don't know. Do you sense, sense anything with the Clippers that would give you pause for a second round series for, from your perspective, or is this just the uh, bubble? Look, I, I think the teams that, that, whether it's Utah or Denver, I mean, both teams are those teams which we've touched on a number of times are just shooting lights out at the moment. Um, I think they'd prefer to play Utah um, than Denver. But, you know, is it sustainable what Denver's yeah. doing at the moment? Is it sustainable, you know, Donovan Mitchell just absolutely 
tearing teams to pieces. We we said this about Toronto last year, Daz. I think it's just the Hawaiian Leonard team. They kind of take on his his persona. I mean, they're just all mm. all about their business. They're not there to have fun. They're not there to laugh mm. and joke with one another. They're there to win basketball games. And when it when it came mm. down to two two, they sort of went, okay, Dallas, you've had your fun. It's time to end this. They ended it. Um, yeah, they, they didn't play much defense, but I think Dallas is sort of one of those teams you kind of have to play at their pace and at their style. So you're going to get into these high scoring shootouts, um, and that's exactly what happened. I think they yeah. did what they needed to okay. do here. I wouldn't be too concerned. I'd be a little bit concerned about the way Paul George started the series, but he certainly found his mojo in the last couple of games. Neither him or Kawhi shooting the ball well. That'd be the one moment of pause I would have with this team. Um, because I think they need the, the, both of those guys to be shooting the ball a hell of a lot better, particularly from three, of course, um, than what they are. Um, the most annoying player in the league, Marcus Morris, out there, um, you know, shooting the ball well, defending well. I mean, it was at one stage in that game four, Doncic had uh, Paul George on him, ran a pick and roll, out of the pick and roll got Kawhi on him, then ran another pick and roll and then had Marcus Morris on him. And then by that stage, there's probably about five seconds left on the shot clock. And I just thought, well, that's just unfair. That is just so unfair to have three elite, elite uh, defenders, even if they're not necessarily yeah. all playing, yeah. firing all cylinders. Um, look, they're still my... Uh, well, I, they're still my pick for the title. I picked them at the start of the year. Um, yeah. I, le- I still lean towards them. I, I guess I've flirted with the Bucks at different stages as well. But certainly in terms of getting out of the West, the Clippers have always been my pick. I don't I don't read too much into the fact that they don't look like they're having the most amount of fun. I don't, yeah, Kawhi, I don't know what Kawhi's idea of fun is, Daz, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't. But, uh, the, and, and I'll tell you another I think read... his idea of fun is, is like a, is, 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 is a, I imagine David Putty, you know, staring blankly at the back of an airplane seat. Yeah. I think it's something to read? Nah. Something to eat? No, nah, thanks, babe. You know, just mouth agape, blind stare. That's what fun is for. Yeah. So, look, the, the only... Yeah, no, I, I'm, I hear you. I hear the you. moment's pause I'd have is there's too many Reggie, Reggie Jackson minutes creeping into this team. Um, and he was he was out there actually for crunch time in a couple of those games. Days. I don't know if that's what I want us to be seeing from... Um, from the Clippers going forward, so some of the, the some of the supporting cast, that's where the question marks might might come. Whether you trust Lou Williams in the big moments as well, yeah. um, and things like that. But look, I think they'll obviously be favourites in the next round. But I, you know, if, if Denver or Utah come in shooting the ball as well as they have, um, and playing with the sort of energy that they have, there's no question those two teams played better in what we've seen in their series than what I think the Clippers did against Dallas. But obviously the Clippers have more gears that they can go to and it's going to be the question of whether whether they get to those gears. So does, let's turn to that last series. We probably should have talked about this first because I think it's been the best series of this round and the best first round series I've seen for a few years, I'd say. Um, to me, you'd have to go back to the Spurs-Clippers first round series Um back in 2015 to get a series that's been this good. How much have you caught of this series and, and who do you fancy in, in Game 7? Because it's been just the, the Murray-Mitchell back and forth. I mean, two players getting 50 points each in a game. 
both averaging high 30s. As we said earlier, shooting the ball in the high 40s from three. And Mitchell's not been a great three-point shooter either, which that's where the sort of the, the shooting in the empty gym comes in we touched on earlier. Who do you fancy and, and what have you made of the series so far? It's been an amazing series for every reason that you just said. This historic, um, or if I'm not mistaken, has Murray scored 50 twice or just Murray scored 50 twice and, and Mitchell scored 50 and twice. And so has Mitchell. Yeah. Yeah. Which I, I heard today, Daz, is the most times 50 points have been scored in entire playoffs in the <laughs> NBA, not let alone two players in one series. And so it's historic on, on, on so many levels. Um, I think Iverson scored three 50 point games in 2001 and, bef- and the last time four 50 point games are in the ser- in the NBA playoffs were uh, yonks something in the 60s if I'm not mistaken. So historic for just those two and their shot making and just the back and forth in the fourth quarter for Sky Stands is unbelievable. It just happens night after night after night. So you can't say enough about Jamal Murray and Donovan Mitchell. What I find interesting about that, though, is you saw this coming from Donovan, but who, raise your hand, saw this coming from Jamal Murray, right? You I saw seen... it coming for a game. Like, if you had said to me, Jamal yeah. Murray goes off a of 50, yeah, okay. Yeah. I didn't see. He scored 42 in game five. As we touched on, 50 in, in a loss in game four, and he puts on another 50 today in a win. Just that—that's where and I would have gone. Dagger after no. dagger after dagger, and these these aren't like these aren't these uncontested, standing in the corner PJ Tucker three pointers, Daz. These these aren't. these are uh, step backs, side steps off the pick and roll, you know, end of shot clock bailout, um, runners, a few runners from the mid range. That's what's impressed me, the runners, because that opens everything yeah. up once he starts hitting that shot. It, and that's oh, been undi- they they're not able to defend it. It's undefendable. And and he had the the Steph Curry play today, Daz, where it was you know, they had it a bit rolling in the fourth quarter, a very close game that they'd gotten out to about I think it was about an eight point lead. They had a stop, like a deflection on the defensive end, and it was a three on one break, right? It was a breakout. Denver racing back three on one. Murray sprints to the top of the key and ridiculous, right? Three mm-hmm. on one. I should have got a dunk. He pulls up from a full sprint and drills a three-pointer. Like he had a curry moment where he didn't even think about passing the ball. And that's when that's when I saw even another level today. When you're doing plays like that, you're truly so confident, so in the zone, and you're having the trust of your teammates. So cool to – you can't say enough good things about Jamal. Well, Mitchell was outstanding yeah. today as well, but he Murray outshone him. Yeah. And it was one of those games where Mitchell would hit a few shots – and Utah would get within three, but they just couldn't get that next shot. And then Murray would go, all right, I'm going to... And Murray would just come down and hit another three ridiculous shots in a row. And then Utah down 10 again. And then Mitchell had to try and bring him back yeah. again. It was just the back and forth. But then eventually, Murray just blew him out of the gym. Um, well, blew Utah out of the gym. I think Mitchell could obviously well, still hold his head high. But the big question, I guess, Daz, is... Is this is this a like is this a factor of the empty gyms and the bubble, or are you buying this more longer term that you know Jamal Murray's mm. Jamal Murray is going to be? I, I, a I, star th- I actually think there's know. a bit of an. I think it's part of the Australian curse of the playoffs, Daz. I I really do. You know, 
Deli and Thon didn't qualify. Aaron Baines was injured. Ben Simmons was injured. Brett Brown was fired. And Joe Ingles, Daz, has Ooh. been, he has, I mean, Danny Green level done, hesitant, not confident. Like, And and so I, it's a bit of a, a joke, a bit of an Aussie curse. Maybe it, we've not had a really good playoffs, have we, Daz, as, as a country, not really represented. Um, but I'm not joking. J- Donovan Mitchell has had to work 10 times harder for his points than Jamal Murray. Oh, right? 100%. 100% this, right. How many times Mitchell comes down, runs a production, you know, he'll do a prick and roll and a dish out, or he'll break down and get to the lane and have to dish it off, or he'll or Gobero get an offensive rebound, and Donovan has to end up with the ball in his hands with a 14 left on the shot clock. First action breaks down, and Conley can't get by his man. Royce O'Neal's hesitant. Joe Ingles doesn't do anything, just looking to pass the ball. Like, Joe Ingles is a little bit Lou Dort today. He, he was terrible. Well, Lou Dort was at the defense. He wasn't decisive. He didn't shoot. Yeah, and his defense is, you know, okay. Let's just call it okay. <clears throat> but uh, so the, 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 the broad question for me is Donovan's working way too hard. He was really frustrated, Daz. And that was probably partially because of the loss. Right now, he has to do so much, but he was kicking and throwing shit over at the end of the game. It just, you know, I might be reading into it, but you just feel like there's a guy who's not getting enough from his teammates. And Quinn Snyder, even in the in sort of the at least weird, weird masked, you know, mid-quarter interviews, was hinting, you know, that there's, you know, got to be more decisive and more, more ball movement. And you know, I asked the guys, Quinn, flat out, what's the key to, to Donovan's like Donovan's decision making is great. He just needs more. He needs more help and more movement when he doesn't have the ball. And so you feel like Donovan's teammates are letting him down a little bit, which you hope doesn't, which you hope doesn't, you know, grow. Well, yeah. I mean, Clarkson's been, Clarkson has been good in this series, but he was not good today. And when that, when you're relying on Jordan Clarkson, that's obviously the effect where you are. I think the interesting thing too about the bubble is, momentum really matters because you're not it's not a matter now where Utah go well you know what we we get to go home or whatever it might have been you know and obviously they wouldn't have had home court advantage but you don't get those sort of swings game to game because you're going into someone else's arena you're now got to go back out in the same court and all the momentum now is with Denver uh, the way they've won the last two games and the way Jamal Murray he just he can't miss at the moment um I just I you know Utah to me, they had the they had game five in their keeping, and I just Murray just started hitting some shots, and there just no one from Utah could sort of get the the other the ball in the bucket there in the other end, and they ended that game on a sixteen six run, and then today they sort of carried that off and carried that momentum through. I mean, do you feel like the Denver's going to carry that momentum through the game, or can you see um, Utah bouncing back? And yeah, maybe... I do. I, I do because I look. Den- no, I'm 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 Denver all the way. I think most of the world would be. Denver hasn't defended at all, as they've been pretty average. To be honest, I think you know Grant had a nice game today, and they had their moments. And Tory Craig. Well, Gary Harris was good today too. That was the first game. Harris Gary was Harris good. played. Ter- in the Tory Craig was yeoman's work. Yep. Yeah. So they're like the poor man's Clippers in that in that regard, with some wings who can defend. But let's be honest, Murray and Jokic aren't going to win any DPOA. Um, DPOY votes anytime soon. Um, but just for the reasons you said, Murray's confidence off the charts. And I know we joke, I joke a little bit, but you just mentioned in the bubble, it's not like 
the way that um, Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert are going to go on a banana boat in Orlando and, and, you know, and get photographs taken by TMZ, you know, um, bonding together in a brotherhood that says, yeah, we're going to go over the top. This is not exactly a, it's not the, the closest knit team, right. Um, to that point. And so I just don't, I feel like Donovan's having to work way too hard and he has that, he has that, that look of frustration that a, you know, a budding superstar has when he's having to do too much. You know, we've seen that look in LeBron's eyes for a decade in Cleveland. You know, you can see that look on Donovan's eyes where he, he could be carrying a team with a little more support, you know, from, from again, dare I say, from his wings. And Mike Conley's actually looked competent, Daz. Mike Conley doesn't look like a $30 million a year player, mm. but he's played well. He's actually played pretty well in his secondary scoring and secondary creating role. So he is getting a bit of support, but their wings are just, I mean, abysmal. I mean, O'Neal and, and, and Ingles have been absolute, and George Yang, you know, is just playing way too much. It's just no support. So I'm De- Denver all the way, Daz. I think it should be. I'd love to see a really close game, um, but I think Denver will win. Are you pulling for one team or the other in that one? Uh, look, Donovan, like Mitchell's probably my, and... Donovan Mitchell's probably my favorite player, yeah. so I'd, uh, outside of the Spurs, obviously. Yeah. So I'd, I'd be pulling for Utah and the Joe Ingles angle, but um, yeah, I, I fancy that Denver is going to win this series, and I've got a feeling they might win it reasonably comfortably. Um, and they and they got some, some, some game sevens last year, one they won and one they lost. Um, so that they'll they'll carry yeah. that with them, yeah. and I just think I, I agree with you. And Gobert and Conley actually got into it today as well. So there is some frustration boiling over um, for Utah right now. So I just I feel like they 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 had their opportunity to close it out in Game Five, couldn't get it done, and now the the momentum's turned, and I just think it's going to be very very difficult um, to bring back. And can I just final point on this series, just that there's I. I if, if I've seen a better looking jumper than Michael Porter Jr.'s, I can't remember it. That is the most beautiful looking jump shot that I've ever seen in the NBA, I would have to say. Have you, you caught much of play? Uh, he's just I told you, so I've, fluid. I've, I've said offline, he's, he's like the best, um, or maybe I said last pod, he's got the, his upside is like young, mellow, a tr- on the offensive end, right? Um, or maybe they're similar defensively too. But yeah, look, today he was one for 10. Like yeah, he, no did. he didn't go in today, but that's what like got me. Every time he shoots, today, I just expect it's going to go in. But I still think this will go back to the broader question is that he's, he's not optimized with this version of Jamal Murray. He becomes right. He becomes Tobias Harris way too surplus to requirements with two highly, highly skilled offensive players like ball and ball dominant players like Jokic and, and Murray with their balls in the hands. He's, he was going to stand in the corner and shoot threes like a Kuma. You know, that's where I actually genuinely think if he is to be optimized, he might be the most most valuable trade ship. Mm. If you want to, if you wanted to really take a low a low salary like a rookie contract like Porter, imagine I imagine hypothetically, don't answer it. A whole other podcast for you know probably for for Christmas time for us dads is what could you get for Michael Porter Jr. To turn to get Denver a, a third more complimentary star, you know, to that team mm. is um, probably a, a question they'd never entertain, given his youth and his upside. But that's my when you just see this series play out, you just go, how on earth? What's it going to do? Be a Tobias Harris underutilized, low usage, you know, stand in the corner, spot up wing, you know, after Murray to do their thing, 
or is he going to be a, a bench scorer? Is that, is that something in he and his, you know, his career aspirations and would have been number one or number two pick had, had not been hurt and kind of guy want to come off the bench. I don't think he and his, his agent are going to like that. So I just, I'm way too, way too early conversation to be had, but I love his jumper. You've got to be thrilled if you're a Denver fan, but he's been a, almost a, he's been a very um, minor player. Let's put it that way in terms of impact on the series, which in a way makes you feel really good if you're Denver. Again, mm. what talk about surplus to requirements now that Harris is coming back. I think he's going to be a really valuable player, particularly if they go against the, um, the Clippers. So yeah. um, I'm bouncing around death, but I'm, I, I think momentum is going to carry them through. And I think you'll see um, a fascinating, a now way more fascinating than I would have guessed a couple of weeks ago, Denver Clippers series, which oh. might get to the, 140 every game well it's going to yeah. be the fascinating thing will be can jamal can jamal murray do it again is he going to go go back to back rounds where he just takes over a series like this um and you know we've already seen Doncic light them up for some big big numbers so uh, you know you can score on this clippers team yeah um the, yeah, way, they're, the way they're approaching their work at the moment so um no they look going to be a fascinating one i, I wouldn't completely write utah off obviously but I, I i do fancy um the nuggets from here Daz. so we'll see where we end up Daz. um hopefully next time we talk there's no further um shenanigans happening in the u.s that that cause us to question whether the nba is going to yeah. continue um and uh, we're well in well into the the second round how do you how are you feeling confident wise of the bucks in, in this second round you're feeling pretty confident about that yeah. what are you worried about looking down but are you I, worried about the conference files or the nba files or what's what's the worry i, I i'm not immune Daz, and I, I don't know if i probably almost feel the same way the players feel Daz. like it if the Bucks lose in this playoffs, it's it's going to be like it's not going to be as hurtful because of everything that's going on. Like it's not going to sting from a fan perspective. By the other end of the spectrum, though, if they do happen to go through and win a title, it'll feel ten times probably more special, mm. right? Considering all the things that they, that every team's had to had to face. So, I'm I'm genuinely more um, I'm just more probably emotionally attached to the players at large. Than I am, you know, in this, like I was last year, so much, you know, emotionally invested in every dribble and every possession in a title they could have, would have, should have won. And so this year is a far more obstacles. Um, the, their teams are far better placed to defeat them. We got all the stuff happening um, in in the country and with the players and with their, obviously with their, their sort of protest against it, that if the emotional toll or the energy levels run out, and they, you know, they lose a series in a whimper. I'm, I'm actually, you know, I can't be too upset, Daz. So, mm. um, so I guess I'm in a way a bit emotionally um, hedged against a, a loss here. And I think I probably speak like a lot of fan bases and the players themselves that, you know, um, uh, that that placing all of our expectations and heaping all of our, you know, our desires of of fans onto these players to win basketball games just isn't what it was, mm. you know, in quote unquote sort of normal times Daz. So, yeah. um, back, back to wins and losses. I'm pretty confident. I'd say it's, you know, pretty confident in Miami. Um, in, especially I think the second halves, they can I think they can tighten things up. They tend to be this great second half team. Um, but, uh, uh, but I'm not really as terrible. As it sounds. I'm not as emotionally invested 
just because of everything that's happening. Mm. I don't know. But I wish I kind of wish the Spurs were in it so you could have that same sort of that same sort of sense. But I, I, I have a feeling a lot of fans are, are a bit like this, Daz. You wouldn't guess by Twitter, but I wouldn't guess anything by Twitter. That's my sense. No, I, I agree. I think it's it's sort of the whole the whole. There's a bit of a pall, isn't there, over the whole the whole uh, experience at the moment. So um, there was never any chance I was going to get too invested in what the Spurs were doing this season. But I, I take your point. Um, yeah. When you yeah. when you're following uh, the playoffs and you have what you would expect is going to be a really personal attachment to it, and then other things sort of come in, and obviously we've got coronavirus as well as all, all the other stuff. Um, I can, I, I just, this whole, I can just have a gut and I'll record it just to have it recorded. I, I just, my instinct is this whole thing just still set up for a Cinderella. Like, I just feel like it's going to be a, a Nuggets or a Celtics who win the title or a Houston. I, I just, honestly, this just feels like, doesn't it feel like proper Disney Cinderella? This doesn't feel like a LeBron blitzing or a Bucks you know, winning every game 108 to 90 because of their, it just, it doesn't feel like, you know, this highly dynamic, uh, unstoppable um, two-way Clippers team. I just don't see the three buzzsaws, the way we might have seen them in, in March, Daz. So I just... Well, and that's the I thing, gotta, and that's, that's I where I think that, momentum... I that non, the non-big three are going to win. It's got a, It's got a gut around it. Well, that's where I think the momentum side of it's going to come in because there's no reason why Jamal Mm. Murray's going to cool off, Daz. Because it's not like he's going to leave and go to another gym. Like, he is just feeling it at the moment. And you wonder... He's not going to get sick. He's not going to have to travel. That's right. Sorry, yep. So what's what's going to change around that? Um, So that's... And that's what I sort of, you know, that's why I was confident on Toronto as well. Um, Albert, that they've they certainly cooled off in game one against the Celtics, but um, well, it's the same sort of theory. Starting tomorrow, they're allowed more um, people in the bubble, Daz. So this is where September 1st was the day they were going to start allowing um, numbers of family members and friends in the bubble. So we got a whole different set of things to perhaps talk about as, you know, families get closer and, you know, uh, literally in, into the bubble in these cases. So that's going to be, you know, obviously from a health um, health and safety perspective will be a thing, but uh, from a COVID perspective, be a conversation. But also, then, my positive side was then the right, just the emotional and psychological support you know you have from seeing your kids or you know being with your wife or girlfriend or whatever. So, mm. yeah, so that's going to be a, a thing to watch. So I think it's a really good point. The momentum um, and the, just the mental health, the mental health of these teams, which is 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 the mystical. I think the, the on the X factor. Of all X factors, yes, we've got the shooting. Um, and I mean, the shooting, uh, the good shooting gyms, right? This is great places for shooters. And and I think the mental health, which is this impossible to predict and measure kind of dynamic. Mm. So I just I got to I just have a gut that this um this it just feels so set up for a Cinderella. But we'll see. Well, I have heard you've had a gut and you've let yourself go a bit in quarantine, Daz. So I, I hope that you I hope that you find some time to work out a little bit more uh, between now Jeez. and <laughs> Jeez, thanks, mate. Jeez, wow. <laughs> Jesus. Well, it's being talked about in the NBA circles. 
the Darren has, has let himself one half of the dozen does teams let himself go a bit in quarantine, and uh, I'll let. Well, I did. Guess. I did tonight in my I'm embracing my sloth and, and trying to reduce the amount of dishes. Um, I actually grilled my halloumi in the same pan I was grilling my steak, and boy, all the beef fat soaked into that halloumi, and mm, was that a masterstroke in in laziness that. That was total win-win right there, Dad. So save myself cleaning a pan and soak my halloumi with beef fat. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> All right. On that note, Dad, we'll, we'll leave it there. We'll come back and uh, and we'll review yeah. some of the playoffs. Right. Um, well, I love that. If you're going to end on a personal insult, I'm just going to I'm just going to grow. I'm going to roll with it. <laughs> yeah, you just ran uh, with it. That's great. Oh, buddy. All right. All right, man. We'll talk soon. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.